Good evening, I'm Loreto Rojas. And I'm Cal Winslow. This is Talking About California. We are back with another special feature on forests and forestry. This evening, we follow up on our interview with Will Russell, the environmental scientist from San Jose State University, with another of our state's leading scholars in this field. And listeners, this is going to be a real treat. Our guest is Susanna Hecht. She's the distinguished professor in the Institute of Environment and Sustainability at UCLA. Professor Hecht is also a past fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies, Princeton, and she's affiliated with the Graduate Institute in Geneva, Switzerland. Uh, I hope I got that right, Susanna. You did. <laughs> okay. Professor Hecht's scholarship has been path-breaking in many directions. For one, she is the founder of the field of political ecology. Her work has looked at the history of deforestation, international histories and forestry, as well as contemporary debates on the impact of globalization. Also, of course, climate change. And Professor Hecht has a BA from the University of Chicago and a PhD in geography from the University of California at Berkeley. Her books have won numerous prizes. She's the co-author with the late Alexander Coburn of the much celebrated Fate of the Forests, Scramble for the Amazon. Uh, that won the best book uh, in environmental history from the American Historical Association. She was awarded the prestigious John Simon Guggenheim Fellowship in 2008 and has received fellowships and grants from NASA, the National Science Foundation, the Peak Charitable Trust, the MacArthur Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and many others. She has been a resident fellow at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton and at the Center for the Advanced Study of the Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University. In 2018, she was awarded the David Livingstone Centenary Medal of the American Geographical Society. There is more, but we'll leave it at that. So good evening, Professor Hecht. Well, good evening, and thank you for this generous introduction. I'm sort of preening here and going, well, who's that, who's that distinguished person there? Wait a minute here. Um, well, but anyway, yeah, what can you, I say? You, you deserve that and more, and uh, we're so happy to have you uh, here with us this evening. Can we uh, call you Susanna? Yes, of course you can. Okay, and welcome back. Uh, uh, and uh, for our longtime listeners, you might remember it's almost 10 years since uh, you were last on this program, though it seems like yesterday. Well, you know, time flies when you're having fun. And uh, <laughs> your listeners might also like to know that I actually lived in Southern Humboldt County in the little village of Petrolia for on and off for a decade. I kind of commuted between Northern and Southern California. So I feel very um, attached to that part of the part of California. I feel very attached to the Southern part of California too, by the way, but um, it's a place that I have spent a lot of time in and um, I did a lot of preparation for my, uh, your, this is your, your um, audience might not know that actually I'm uh, known more for my Amazonian work than for 
work in California, but uh, I did a lot of preparation for my doctoral work in Humboldt County and in those old forests uh, with one of the great foresters of California, Paul Zinke, who did worked a lot, who was from the forestry department. Also, when I was at Berkeley, I spent a lot of time in the forestry department. So I feel like I, I, uh, I have a kind of immersion in that particular part of the world, but also it's kind of breaking my heart right now, as I'm sure it is for many of you up there. Yeah, thank you so much, uh, Susana. It's, it's a real pleasure uh, for me to talk to you today. So after I read, uh, we, well, we just read all your resume and, and you are filling up all the gaps that we left out. I'm sure there is even more. So all this means that you are dividing your time between Los Angeles, Geneva, the Amazon, Princeton, are you teaching as well as writing? So tell us a little bit, where are you doing Well, I'm I, uh, I teaching uh, actually quite a bit. Um, and also I just became the chair, the director, the directrice of the uh, Center for Brazil Studies at UCLA. So uh, part of it is that I have actually quite a big teaching load, but this is a sort of moment also which requires a lot of activism because of the dynamics of global change. We just had that IPCC report released. I just finished up with uh, another 170 scholars, a kind of IPCC for Amazonia. Um, for Can you spell UN. out for us the IPCC oh, yeah. for the ones that don't know anything about that, sorry. Uh, the International Panel on Climate Change but ours is called the Scientific Panel on Amazonia, which is really about kind of the environmental history and what's driving the fires and land degradation and stuff that's going on there and sort of a picture of what, what's happening. Um, for, for those who don't sit and follow these things in tremendous detail and who can blame you, life being busy as it is, these big panels, basically just bring together thousands of pieces. They bring together a, the literature, the research on these and sort of structure through these big you know, scientific groups, um, what the data are saying. And there's modeling that goes along with it. But a lot of it is just kind of consolidating the science uh, and the scientific debates about what's going on. So it's uh, these are these are very. Let me tell you, they're really time consuming to do. You're not really paid for them, except in you know karmic karmic coin of virtue, I guess. But uh, they also really help. They also sort of bring everybody up to speed about the kind of dangers that we're beginning well, that we're really seeing very strongly right now. And uh, you in Mendocino, you don't seem to have any water anymore in your little village, that charming village of Mendocino that I have known so well. And yeah, that's, 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 that's really the case. Uh, many people, up to 70% of the wells in the village are dr going dry. Right. But I, I really appreciate uh, um, 
your work because I think you are hitting the nail already in a very interesting way because you are presenting your work as a scientist and working with these um, organizations to create uh, a sounding report that can be used in politics. But also you highlighted at the beginning the activism that is so needed at this time. So thank you so much for, for your work, truly. Well, I think that um, right now, pretty much uh, if, if scientists in several spheres are becoming much more uh, activist because in a certain sense, the response to what are really serious crises has been not as strong as you would like. Now, some of this is the sort of obfuscation, you know, the merchants of doubt kind of story where basically people say, well, the science isn't consolidated or, you know, that's just a model or whatever they wanna say. But the point is that this science scientists have not have been in historically kind of discouraged from entering into the fray, even though when they do enter in, we they're very we they us are very uh, powerful actors in policy. One of the things I teach, I teach a class on the history of climate. I teach another one on collapsology, by the way, which you know, let me tell you. It's, kind of, it's hard on both me and the students to do that, do that work. But one of the things that I always like to teach, is, and it's a story about scientists engaging in politics and politics around climate and politics around, let's say a form of energy, nuclear energy, actually nuclear war, is we never actually had the sort of horrible drama of, nu of nuclear winter. And nuclear winter is kind of the opposite of climate change, the climate change we're having. But basically um, you had several scientists, uh, many from my institution here in Southern California, who began to start looking at what would be the impacts of, of nuclear war. And instead of just sort of saying, well, some people will, you know, die of, 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 you know, radiation disease, but everything will be fine. You know, I mean, they began to sort of look at what happens if you pulverize cities and throw huge amounts of uh, dust and so on in the atmosphere and create this thing called nuclear winter. And their argument was that this was so much more profound than the sort of little story about, well, you know, some people will die of radiation poisoning and that really somehow it's survivable in some kind of way. This was in some sense, the real beginning of global atmospheric science and thinking about the dynamics of large scale human impacts so profound that they could change the climate. So what you had was a kind of a mobilization of a bunch of uh, scientists and atmospheric scientists, and they did everything. They looked at volcanoes, uh, they looked at interplanetary stuff. They looked at a lot, of, it was very multidisciplinary about what happens when you start to really throw all this stuff in the atmosphere. Well, so we didn't have nuclear winter because there was this scientific at, uh, activism. There was also a lot of social activism against nuclear arms, pressure for disarmament, um, cooling of the Cold War and the sort of militaristic stances about things 
and that sort of sense that nothing could be changed, you know, that we're on a kind of path dependent thing and we're just gonna stay. But it was, re and, and this, you know, had a lot of the military industrial complex and lots of sort of state investment in it. But it, the point about this is that it did get stopped through both science pressuring governments and scientists and, and social movements and social activism that made it so that we didn't have the uh, what seemed like an inevitable problem of the nuclear winter. So I like to teach that because first of all, what you see is, uh, you know, there's a lot of debate, the debates that go on, but at the end, you know, you kind of avoid uh, what seemed like an inevitable catastrophe by using the science to inform the policy, to have social pressure on the ground, to have people concerned about their children and their grandchildren and like whether there would be a world for them. And it really did work. So it's kind of, um, and it looked like it would never possibly work because of the nature of the Cold War at the time. So then you get, uh, you know, disarmament and a lot of pacts and so on. And, and it's not that perhaps that risk has gone away, but the context for that risk has really changed. So as someone who um, grew up in, in Utah, where basically um, between the Dugway Proving Grounds and nuclear testing uh, in Nevada sort of were the punctuation marks of my childhood, um, the idea that you could actually kind of turn turn the turn the ship around to something else is a really um, it's a really salutary uh, it's a salutary lesson and it's a hopeful lesson in light of the situations that we're facing now. Now, one of the things is that there's lots of different kinds of scope. That is the different sort of ways and forms of entering into this and the scales. So one of the things is working at global or really large scale processes, planetary processes of you know, climate change, um, globalization, uh, other kinds of economic and social processes that work at really big scales, social media. And then the other thing is also um, that when you, you can do stuff at smaller scales, uh, by, but you have to think about things having impacts at larger scales. Right, and I think we here in Mendocino County are exactly in that place now because of our uh, current crisis with the deforestation that hangs over us. So could you talk a little bit about deforestation and perhaps particularly what, with what you have seen in Northern California? Well, I think Northern California is kind of interesting because it really went through a kind of a plunder period in the 1950s when, um, when the uh, California suburbs were expanding by leaps and bounds. Um, those forests re really went through a sort of massive clearing. Um, at that time, there really wasn't much of an environmental movement. The environmental movement such as it was tended to deal more with um, questions of, um, questions of uh, pollution. But also I have to say that the forest industry was a little bit different in that 
it it sort of saw itself as being in place as an industry for a long time, not just being a plunder shop. Um, this, of course, has changed with hedge funds and other kinds of things, and also the dynamics of demand for for wood products and so on, um, and competition with less expensive wood global wood products and so on. So. It's, uh, you know, before most of California's wood demand was locally sourced or narrowly sourced within the Western United States, but now you get sourcing of stuff from all over the world. So that's one other thing. And then the other thing is that the sort of plunder economy that came in um, really did a lot of decimation. Um, the, the question, one of the things that I always find interesting, and I think this is an interesting story about, let's say Humboldt County that I know better than, than Mendocino County is that first of all, well, when you deforest, you get a lot of sediment into the rivers that affects the salmon, it affects a lot of the, if you have hydropower, it affects that. Um, um, it affects obviously the wildlife and so on. And there, as you might recall, there were all these issues about the spotted owl, the Endangered Species Act used to protect large areas and so on. So one of the things is that I think what we, what, what we have in the US is a kind of a weird mentality, which is you have cities, you have agriculture, and then you have these sort of natural landscapes that are seen as wild or semi-wild. And they're not really seen as being sort of the legacy of different forms of, how should we say, cultivation by indigenous populations or, or forms of management, um, particularly because of the um, plunder economies that hit that part of the world. Um, you had really not very careful logging and then you had what you see also, I always say, you know, like Humboldt County was kind of a pre-board for understanding Amazonia. You had a lot of deforestation and, and kind of ruining of the waterways and so on. And then you put a bunch of cattle on and the cattle is not very productive pasture. Um, and, uh, you know, you get that grassland, but once that starts to go, then you get, of course, the back to the land movement, which buys up all this degraded land and, you know, sets up those little communes and homesteads and so on that are actually part of the great rural charm of that area. But also what they do is that in, they come up with a sort of more intensive form of uh, production, which in, involves, of course, the long history of marijuana production there, which, you know, I mean, Let's give that place credit. You know, it basically invented what is now a multi-billion dollar domestic um, industry through what we in the development world would call uh, import substitution. So instead of buying your pot from Colombia or Mexico, you would grow, and they were not very rich, but they were very smart. And so now you have this sort of indoor growing and very intensive growing and what you see, and I've, I've looked at some of the remote sensing and um, airplane imagery, remote uh, imagery, fixed wing, um, as well as remote sensing. And what you can see is that basically a lot of Humboldt County went through what we call a forest transition. That is, even though actually the it, wooded areas were more in, you know, the area was more 
densely populated in its rural, in its rural areas, it had more forest. So one of the things is that we always have this story about, well, people go to cities and then it all empties out and then you know, the forests come back. But what you had was a landscape being occupied in a different way with sort of more intensive forms of organic agriculture, um, more, uh, more kinds of tree crops and orchard crops. And remember that region, uh, Southern Humboldt County and also Mendocino County used to be very famous for, um, for their tree crops, apple crops in particular. And it, the sort of, um, uh, what do you call the, uh, the famous Etter family basically took all this germplasm that was being collected all over the world from Cornell and tested it in California. And it, what you see as you drive along some of these back roads are these rather extraordinary orchards full of these wonderful heirloom, uh, uh, heirloom um, uh, uh, apples. He was, Etter was kind of considered like the Burbank of uh, Northern California. The point here is that you had agroforestry, you had complex um, uh, production systems, even illegal production systems, which were highly remunerated. Um, and in, the, in that process, essentially what you had was landscape recovery with uh, actually a growing economy and an inhabited rural area. Um, and also actually say what you will about, you know, uh, growing pot, but um, it did keep a lot of the kids in the, in the area. That is, you didn't get what you get in the Midwest is that everybody, um, you know, young people couldn't see a future there. Here they could see a future in a complex industry with, uh, you know, great remuneration. So one of the things I think we need to think about is that there has been a lot of recovery in this region in densely inhabited things, in changes in land use, and not linked to this um, uh, natural resource plunder, which has been so much a part of the history. Now, a lot of what you'll be seeing, what you see then is sort of second growth and poorly managed second growth. And I don't have to tell anybody who's listening to this, you drive on some of those back roads and that those trees uh, are like, as they say, hairs on a dog. It just came back, never managed, fire suppression, and you have what a, a huge amount of duff, you have a huge amount of slash, any fire gets in there and it just goes like what we're seeing right now in the Dixie fire, which is, you know, distressing to everyone who knows these regions, which is one, their vulnerability to fire is pretty extreme. And the second thing is that I worry about is that with climate change, the form of, you're not gonna get the kind of recovery that historically we've had. So in the first phase of deforestation in this region, which is, you know, the uh, late uh, 19th, 19th century and mid to mid 20th century, a lot wetter uh, and a lot uh, cooler. And now we're seeing, uh, we're just entering a different phase and we don't really know what kind of recovery we're gonna see. In Southern California, what we've seen is a tipping point almost where, I mean, it's more complicated here because of the nature of the 
extensive urbanization. But what we're seeing here is a tipping point in the movement away from chaparral into grasslands. And that's what we worry about in Amazonia too, particularly in the Southern Amazon, is a tipping point away from a forested ecosystem into a grassland ecosystem, which is more drought tolerant, but it doesn't do the kind of what we call environmental services, which is you know the habitat work, the mediating water, the hydroclimatic work, the relationship of trees to the atmosphere, the mediation of climate, tree covered areas and areas below trees have much cooler microclimates than open grasslands. And you can test this yourself, just take a thermometer out into an open field and then take it into a forest and depending on the day and the time, you'll see that your forest area is a lot cooler. So there's a lot of things that come up with the kind of deforestation that we're seeing and also in the mediation of both the hydrologic system, the water system, how forests sort of uh, control water in many ways. And also particularly these big old forests, how they evaporate, they put uh, water into the atmosphere, they cool it um, partly through the, just the way that they breathe into the, into the air. But the other thing that's important to realize is the deforestation that you do now is not gonna give you the recuperation that all the scientific literature has told you from the 20th century. So what, whatever we're looking for is not gonna be the same and that we could very well be hitting some tipping points. Um, if you can take something as big a forest as the Amazon, which is the size of the United States, and tip it into a lot of it into a grassland, you can imagine what happens with these little slivers of forest that we have in Mendocino and Humboldt. Right. Susanna, um, could we pause here for just a couple of seconds? Sure. Um, this is Cal Winslow and Loretta Rojas, and we're your hosts today. And our program is talking about California, and this is KZYX, Mendocino Community Listener Supported Radio. And our guest this evening is Susanna Hacht, Professor of the Environment and Sustainability at the University of California in Los Angeles. Well, I wonder if we could step back just for a minute, and if you could give us a little introduction to, we don't have much time, so it has to be short, to the history of forests and forestry. And I've been interested in uh, the debates going on about these temperate forests in um, Northwestern uh, America, which apparently are, are as uh, important as just about any forest in, in the world, I'm told, and they're being massively uh, uh, logged, especially I think up now in British Columbia and southern Alaska. But 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 what are you? And this may tell us a little bit about how you got involved in forestry. What's what's the big picture here? Well, I, I got involved in forestry because I was worried about deforestation in Amazonia. Now I can't really explain why that happened. Um, one of the things is that I was very interested and people from Chicago will, 
will remember this, which is that it gets really cold there in February. And I was walking from my tropical ecology class to my Latin American history class. And um, I was hit in the forehead by a blast of cold air right in my third eye, actually. <laughs> and uh, I thought, oh, well, this is very interesting. They're both talking about the same place. And the biologists are talking about this as if there were no people or no human history. And the humans were talking, the, the historians were talking about this place as, as if there were no biotic history. So the virtue of geography, and this is a shout out to all people studying geography and many of the environmental studies students get a lot of geographic training, which is this sort of integration between the natural environment and the human, human history and human processes. So in a certain sense, forests all have social lives. They're all biotic entities, of course, but they also have social lives because they've been integrated into human activities for a really long time. The other thing that's really important to keep in mind too, is that the time horizon is perhaps a little longer than we like to think. If you go up into the Klamath, um, and I, you know, again, I feel so badly. I was, the last time I was, 2019 was the last time I was up there. It was my last road trip up there before things shut down. Anyway, um, if you go to the Paisley Clint Caves, and it's not too far from a lot of the places that are burning, what you'll see is the, old, the place where there's the oldest traces of human occupation in the Northern hemisphere. We can go, there are lots of debates. I'm not gonna go into those, but the point is it was, what you realize is that people have been interacting with this Northern part of the American continent for, at, for quite some time, at least 14,000 years, manipulating plants, modifying plants, and you know, changing the kinds of management. One of the things I was working on when I was up there last was uh, talking to some of the Hurok and, and Klamath leaders and their scientists about um, fire management. In, in my work in Brazil, I've done a lot of work on fire, fire and indigenous knowledge. And you know, there are these fire bosses that people who know about fire, know about how it works with the landscape and how to manage it. And what's been very clear is that actually the fire man, indigenous fire management in Northern California has really been very helpful at, key, at, at reducing fire loads and flammability of these, of these ecosystems compared to the sort of unmanaged kind of dynamic that we have going on elsewhere. These fire bosses ought to be using a lot more indigenous um, indigenous knowledge and indigenous uh, theoreticians about how you might want to manage some of these things. It's interesting also, when I was in college, I had a, a boyfriend who was from Montana and he was like one of these hotshot firefighters. And he says, oh yeah, my, it's me, my crew, and that crew is all basically Indians because they're the only people who really know how to work around a fire. And um, at the time I thought that was just kind of poetic or something, but uh, essentially what uh, the argument he was making is that, you know, there's these, there are these forms of practical knowledge that are really important, both in terms of fighting fires, 
but also in terms of, of uh, preventing or reducing their impact. Now we're at sort of a, unfortunately we're at kind of an impasse because we have a lot of climate change. I don't need to tell you about 115 in Portland, I can't even conceive of it. Um, and really unmanaged forests or forests where, where there's been too much fire suppression and drying of vegetation. We've also had huge in, insect attacks. And I don't know what to tell you other than that we're going to just be seeing a sort of a, a agglomeration of materials now and processes that's gonna give us kind of a destructive uh, a destructive moment. And who knows when that Dixie fire is gonna go out because I guess it needs, we'll have to wait until the rains, which is always an unpleasant concept when you're talking about dealing with a, a, a forest fire in that's been burning for what, three weeks and we're- in, Something we're even, even longer, I think. But I wanted to jump in and uh, ask you a question about uh, what you just said, who, that's something that it has been discussed here where we are trying to protect this forest. It's a public land, it's the Jackson State Forest. Uh, it's not a park, it's, it has been the, managed by Cal Fire. And um, they, they had these uh, plants to harvest, you know, quote unquote, the forest uh, from many sites and the community started feeling really alarmed because of the fires that you are mentioning. And also because naturally uh, we consider the forest to be uh, a helper in the fight of, against uh, climate change and getting actually more carbon sequestration rather than putting more carbon in the atmosphere, which is creating the, as you all well know, high temperatures and the disruption so-called disruption of the weather. So, but one of the things is that, uh, one of the discussions is this, is that uh, um, the indigenous population and the nations, the Indian nations need to be part of the decisions that are being taken uh, place. And this brings me into this concept that you, this actually uh, part of the studies and work that you are doing about political ecology. So uh, how actually, can we um, have a saying and change the politics around the man management of the forests? Well, I, I, I'm not quite sure how one does this, but one of the things is to start to have um, as much local participation as you can. The other thing is, you know, uh, the, the indigenous population, as they say, the originarios, actually have um, been managing on the Klamath a lot of those forests. Remember that they were just given little strips so that, you know, whoever, you know, the, the settler population could come in and take the rest, uh, steal the rest. Uh, and the, you know, the, the treaties were never really taken care of properly and so on. But the point is that the knowledge still was being reproduced in a lot of ways through the management of the lands that they had. So one of the things would be to really start to include indigenous leaders in, this, um, in these debates about how one might go about managing these things rather than sort of saying, well, 
you know, the, the indigenous populations, they're so primitive, what do they know? In fact, they have actually, in terms of landscape management, huge, they're a huge source of information and also a source of um, environmental history. And some of that is, I had the wonderful, really remarkable experience of sitting between, uh, uh, you know, standing, looking at a landscape with um, one of the scientists and one of the leaders. And one was giving me a sort of mythological story about that area. And the other was talking about the science that the mythological practices actually produced in terms of the landscape. So in a certain sense, sometimes you need these kinds of translations, um, but the point is that they are extremely, um, you, there, there are indigenous scientists who are thoroughly capable of understanding what's going on. And of course they've been uh, instrumental in setting up these long-term climate uh, management programs um, and climate mitigation and adaptation programs within their, own, within their own areas. So one of the things is to sort of say, well, indigenous science, it can also be a science and it can also be a useful science. After all, many of us would be uh, very unhappy if we all of a sudden had to do without rubber or without many kinds of starches or uh, many kinds of medicinals that come out of indigenous science. So I think the thing that's important to keep in mind is that there is a resource that is still being untapped and the reasons for that may have to do with longer term historical processes in these regions, but maybe this is a time since the threat is universal to in which to sort of look at and discuss with uh, indigenous, um, uh, indigenous thinkers and indigenous practitioners about the kind of land management that might be a better way forward. The other thing is this year is certainly a loss, we're not gonna get that Dixie fire back, but that doesn't mean that all uh, future fires have to be the same way. The other issue I think has to do with the logging of older second growth. One of the problems with that is that a lot of the carbon in those systems is in that second, is in the bigger trees. Um, and you find this all over, you find this in the tropics, you find it in the temperate zone that most of the carbon in the system is stored in the big trees. So for reasons I don't need to explain to you guys, um, there's a sort of interest in those larger trees because you know they're, they're sort of more efficient to harvest and so on and they, you know, they give you a better return. But in doing so, you're taking more carbon out of that system and it is true that with that young second growth that comes out after you do it, you get like a big carbon flush, except those trees are much, and the, the, softer, the softer brush is much more vulnerable to fire. So even though it may be absorbing carbon pretty quickly, uh, it's also highly vulnerable. And it takes a long time to get those big, tree, those big second growth trees into place. So the question that one has to ask is like, what would be uh, thinking about this in a somewhat longer term way? What really, what would really serve the community? It's public land. So, and CAL FIRE, I think we all agree is 
you know, extremely important to us all. And we, we appreciate their hard effort. So this is not a thing to sort of trash Cal Fire for logging, but rather to think about it, are second growth old redwoods really the priority kind of forest to be harvesting right now, even though it might be relatively more lucrative to do so. But really, where, where really are the uh, priority areas? Those coastal areas are often more urbanized, so they have an influence. They have a sort of local microclimatic influence in these regions as well. So um, the question is, first of all, these are, not, these are not empty forests. They're not forests that have no other, other kind of value. So perhaps the other values might be higher. Um, it used to be if the only thing that you were looking at was board feet, then nothing, then every forest was better to be cut down. But now that we start to think about environmental services and we think about climate change, maybe the value of those standing forests may be exceeding the value of those uh, board feet. So there's a lot of questions that might be asked and the other thing is we need to ask about what kind of landscape future we would like. And um, the answer that I keep coming up with is we don't really quite know what our future looks like because of the dramatic rate of change. And that big report, that big climate report is would argue for being pretty cautious about things because of the things to suck carbon out of the atmosphere while we wait for some machine to turn carbon from the atmosphere into diamonds, trees have already been invented. They're already there. Their entry costs of using them is low compared to inventing something that someone, some tech person can monetize and so on. So, um, or that requires lithium from Bolivia, whatever. But the point is that we have, we have to really think through the value of a standing forest versus its value in board feet. And what we need to do is calculate the value in of the environmental services. The right. Environmental, yeah. Yeah, I want to say that this is Loreto Rojas. I'm here today with Carl Winslow. Uh, this is your radio program talking about California in KCYX, Mendocino Community, listener-supported radio station. And you have been listening to this very interesting um, report and reflection and information from Professor Susana Hecht. Uh, she's a professor of environment and sustainability at UCLA. And you're touching many important um, uh, topics here and you're really describing what's happening to us because the profit that we get from this uh, harvesting of this forest is really small considering the benefit of leaving those trees standing. Carl? There's so many questions. We don't have uh, all that much time. I, I did want to get to um, your affiliations in Geneva at some point, is, uh, because that must be quite important in terms of your outlook, but also uh, to get really to, to get to be blunt about logging with people, because um, you know, uh, there's a spectrum really about uh, in terms of people's views about logging, none, some, a lot. 
so I'm interested in that. It's uh, my impression from reading that, for instance, the bootleg fire up in uh, Oregon is the result partially of what uh, your your friend Jeffrey Sinclair said that that area had had the uh, SHIT logged out of it over decades. And I think we're going to find out that there's been a lot of disruption up in the um, Dixie Fire area as well. So those are two different kinds of questions. You can pick one or the other. But um, I think I think the question is, uh, do we really have to have uh, one question is, do we really have to have logging? Well, it depends. I mean, I don't, I'm not a, a complete anti-logging uh, person. Um, I think that there's, there's uh, um, ways of logging and commitment to logging that can be, that can be part of a so-called inhabited, you know, a social forest, a, a way of being in that gives you both social, social results and, um, and income from timber. So I'm not entirely against it, but I don't have to tell you cause you guys can go and just go over the hill and look at stuff. And what you see in a lot of logging operations is a lot of slash that's cut through that when they, um, so that there's a lot of stuff left on the ground. And also that um, in some contexts there, let's say you're doing selective logging for each thing you're taking out you're damaging the others, uh, you know, ten others in in other in other uh, areas, tropical areas. The selective logging, which gives you income off of these things, uh, off of these landscapes, often involves just sort of massive uh, degradation of the other kinds of things. The other problem in some of these situations is that the building of logging roads itself causes a lot more vulnerability. Uh, you're cutting stuff through, but also um, in in you're creating an area in which you can have uh, open things up and make them more vulnerable to fire. So the problem that we have is, you know, the, there's the art and the science and the narrative, and it's hard to know at any given moment how whether and and, and there's also the the narrative of well, you know. Uh, the providential narrative that we have dominion over the earth and we can do what we like. So um, it, we can do what we like if we don't care that we have a future. So, so that's the problem. And, and the other thing is, I don't think you can just say, well, you can never have logging or you can you should cut it all down anyway, because, you know, that way there's greater return. So, you know, the, the, but the other thing is that perhaps this is a community question that needs to be very sharply debated. And, you know, in the Bowie fire, yes, you've had a lot of sort of crappy logging going on. And particularly under the conditions of the previous administration, where there wasn't very much regulation and there wasn't much enforcement of the regulations that existed. So it's also sort of helped to create a sort of more literally volatile situation. 
Right, because we see that what you just mentioned, uh, we have some reports we are trying to share with our neighbors that actually when you cut through the forest, you just make these niches where these the, no native plants, highly flammable like uh, scotch broom, mm -hmm. start taking over as the disruption of the niches and the old, old ecology that is under the trees. And uh, as I said before, the, the revenue we get is very small, but it's still being an issue of how to manage these uh, forests. Somehow for us, it seems that sometimes the redwood forest here on the on our coast in, in Northern California, it doesn't get as much attention as for instance, the Amazonia, even when it can be as efficient or some people claim even more efficient of uh, carbon sequestration. But thank you so much for what you were telling us about uh, this issue. Well, those uh, redwood forests are pretty vulnerable, although they're they are historically we know they're resilient to fire. When you you know people can even see those fire scars, so you can. Uh, but these hot fires, perhaps less resilient, perhaps less resilient to them. And the other thing is that their recovery depends not just on them, but on a ecological community. And I think this issue of raising the importance of, of uh, introduced species is really critical here. I mentioned that the chaparral here in Southern California is going through a tipping point where it's basically going into grasslands and that grass is uh, uh, an introduced, uh, it's uh, oak grass, it's an introduction, Mediterranean introduction. So it's basically being taken over by, oh dare we call it alien species. They're not alien species to the planet, but they're not native species here. And they tolerate fire in a different way than the kinds of fires that we saw before. So I, I think that we need to, you know, first of all, we're entering the phase of the unknown. Some of the models will be very helpful. Um, but the other thing is that communities need to be um, advocating for themselves a bit more um, uh, with these area about large scale landscape processes that are going to affect them. A lot of deforestation will affect your water availability. So that's another thing that you might wanna you know, keep strongly in mind. Um, and the other thing is that there's, there are some solutions. And as I mentioned in my sort of first thing about talking about nuclear winter, it, there's kind of an integration of of, you know, there's that political action and the sort of what looks like a path dependency thing of everybody's gonna run forward and do it this way. We've made our, we have made our decision, but there's also another body of science. There's rethinking about the value of that path. Maybe it's, that's a futureless path, you know? Maybe we should rethink that. And then engaging a lot of different kinds of science and also a lot of different kinds of community action at different kinds of scale and scope. Um, the other thing is that I'd also like to say, and then I think I'm, our time is up, but uh, is the idea of teleconnection, that actions affect things at a distance. It's like gravity. Um, so that the things that are affecting you and all of us, a lot of this has its sources far away, the Antarctic, Amazonia, Australia, as well as globalization. But the other thing is that there's, so there's stuff 
teleconnection gives you like a big scope. It gives you the big area, the big context. But scale is also where we have to operate. And we can't all operate at global scales because we have other things to do. Um, yes, but, and, and I wanted to say also that false premise that we grew up with thinking that these were renewable Mm-hmm. sources, which is a totally false premise. We know now that we cannot just keep on cutting the forest and uh, it's, it's going by itself to recover. It's all sort of what you're saying also with the salmon industry and many other industries mm-hmm. that you were mentioning. Yeah, the, the salmon, you can say pretty much chow to for quite some time. Right, um, right. And you're right. We have a few minutes left and I don't know if Carl has another question. Well, I was uh, wondering um, if you could tell us about uh, what you're working on right now. Uh, what, what kind of projects are you involved in right now? Are you uh, writing uh, more books, uh, one? And two, uh, can you tell us a little bit about how listeners can view uh, and have access to your work? Do you have a website or does UCLA have a, a website? Could you uh, tell us a little bit about that, please? Um, well, there, I, I do have a website at the, the IOES. I also have a more elaborated website at the Graduate Institute for International Development Studies. But I have been giving a lot of keynotes um, and uh, classes and so on. Some of these are, so one that my, so I'm working a lot on the dynamics of land use change and environmental change in Amazonia right now. Um, and I'm writing a book that's the sequel to uh, Fate of the Forest. And I wish it, the Fate of the Forest ended up with, you know, the noble rubber tappers, indigenous people and everyone sort of coming together to save the Amazon. And they sort of did for a while. But then, um, as they say, evil walks the land. Um, but uh, so I'm I'm working on that, um, and that takes a, that takes quite a bit of time. Um, but the other thing is that probably if you just go on the internet, um, one one place that is certain to have it is the Bren Center, UC Santa Barbara. Um, uh, also, the um, there. I, what I can do is I can I can send stuff and you can put it on your website. Probably yes, please. Easier to get hold hold of that way, and it's more concentrated because it's pretty dispersed. It's, it's been all over the planet actually. So um, uh, as we try to think things forward, the other thing is that um, I'm interested in environmental history, and I'm interested in seeing what the past can teach us about how we might like to go forward. So this is not, this is being a conservative in that sense, but um, it's that there are lots of techniques, lots of knowledge systems and so on that are perhaps more available to us, solutions that are more available to us than simply saying, well, we'll just go for the next high tech thing. There's nothing wrong with going, looking at the entire range, but I think in terms of what we call nature-based solutions, that requires looking more at indigenous knowledge and, and being more in the land and the landscape than simply saying, well, we'll just come up with a machine that will suck out the carbon, or we'll just take our carbon and bury it in the ice in Iceland, or 
these are the kinds of things that are proposed. I don't say that they're not worthy, but you know, it's not everybody who can do that, but everybody can start to nurture the forests around them and nurture the life that's around them and hope that we have a future life for all of us. Thank you so much. So I'm, I'm afraid we are running out of time. And as uh, Carl was saying, we hope it won't be another 10 years when <laughs> I will have the pleasure to talk to you again. And this was uh, talking about California. And today you heard Professor Susanna Hecht. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And um, I think we are coming back with more, no, Carl? Yeah, um, Loretto, I, I also wanted to say that uh, I really hope that next time you're up this way, that uh, you would stop by and, and visit with us and, and talk to people uh, here about your work. Um, we certainly would be uh, more than happy to facilitate that. So uh, um, I, I, I hope I hope that that can that can happen. Um, I did want to tell listeners that Loretta and I will be back next month with another series for uh, Hispanic heritage, and I hope uh, listeners will watch for the dates. Uh, we think that we'll have some very informative guests, and uh, we encourage uh, everyone to to look for the dates and look for the programs. So until then, thanks very much for uh, listening. Again, many, many thanks, Susanna. It's been a great uh, uh, opportunity uh, and pleasure to talk with you. And uh, good evening, Loretto, and good evening, all. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. It was wonderful. Even it's been too long, Cal. But, uh, <laughs> yes, next time I come up, when who knows when that will be, but um, I'm hoping soon. I'm hoping that we can see uh, more movement in the next in the next year. And I will certainly make a point of going and seeing my friends on the North Coast, the, the Lost Coast, as some like to call it. Thank you so much. It has been a pleasure. Muchas gracias, profesora. Hasta luego. This podcast was produced by KZYX-FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, local community radio for Mendocino County, California. If you enjoyed the program and you'd like to hear more, in Northern California, you can tune in anytime to KZYX at 90.7 FM in Philo, KZYZ at 91.5 FM in Willits and Ukiah, and 88.1 FM in Fort Bragg. If you're listening to this podcast from further away, we also stream live 24 hours a day at kzyx.org, where you can hear our eclectic range of locally produced music, public affairs, and news, along with daily state and national news programs and breaking news. You can also find out how to become a member to keep KZYX on the air. Thank you for listening.